This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back well fancy seeing you here luke jones still sitting in for matt chorley on the times red box podcast today we are going on a 2001 afghan war odyssey we will take you back to the 7th of october 2001 hear from a soldier a journalist and an ambassador around at the time when the war started. Uh, what do they make of all that's happening now? First, though, we'll start with our tip-top columnists, John Stevens from the Daily Mail and Melanie Reid from the Times. Let's start with holidays, shall we, John? Um, take us to what the latest twists today. Set again, sorry. The latest, holidays. The latest holiday twists today. I mean, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about. I think what are the new revelations today about all the holiday things that are happening? Oh, sorry, with Dominic Raab. <laughs> yes. Sorry. No, I was like, I'm I not asking about your holiday. <laughs> no, I thought. I just didn't know this was what I was on to speak about. Um, <laughs> no, Dominic Raab's the latest twist today is, obviously, we've known for the last few days that Dominic Raab was on holiday, that Boris Johnson was on holiday, but we've also found out today, courtesy of the Times, that the permanent secretaries, those are the top mandarins in the Foreign Office, the Home Office and the Ministry of Defence have all been on their holidays. And obviously those are the three departments that have been responsible for organising this evacuation of British nationals and Afghans who worked for British troops out of Kabul. So, I mean... (sighs) It seems slightly unfortunate that, you know, some of these people were on holiday, but still with kind of a week on into this crisis now, you know, even last Friday, we knew things were going majorly wrong, that we were having to send 600 troops over to Afghanistan to help try and get Brits back. The fact that we've got three of the most senior civil servants Mm. in Whitehall still on holiday just seems slightly ridiculous. Melanie, what did you think when you read this reporting? Well, it's, it's, I think about Rory Stewart saying so clearly, this is not a serious government. Um, I, I, his words were so, that, that sentence kind of sums it up. You know, it's, it's kind of weak and dysfunctional, chaotic, isn't it? And it's coming from the top because one assumes that in a, in a serious government, there would have been a strategy in place. They knew that, they knew that August was going to be a hot time. And presumably, um, these civil servants could have been ordered home some time ago uh, or told not to take the holidays. You know, uh, uh, as your previous, as your previous uh, commenter, commenter was saying, it's in the old days, the old type of Whitehall mandarins, they wouldn't have dreamt of leaving their desks, would they? And, um, 
And John, yesterday on, on the programme, you were telling us about uh, some of the upsets uh, on the Tory backbenchers and even from from some ministers as well, briefing the papers. In terms of this twist now, in terms of the, the permanent secretaries, not just being on holiday when Kabul fell, but still being on holiday, how corrosive do you think that this might be for those still working uh, on all of this, working on this crisis? Well, I think you make a good point that... If you're one of those soldiers who's been sent over to Afghanistan, if you were one of those diplomats, you know, working out of Kabul airport in, you know, not very safe circumstances, you would think, gosh, where are where are our leaders? And they are so far back from the battle lines that they're in different countries, some of them, that it does just seem absolutely uh, ridiculous. But I think, you know, Dominic Raab clearly has decided he's not going to resign. And I don't think Boris Johnson is going to sack him anytime soon, although I think he is probably quite vulnerable when there's next a reshuffle. But one of the things I was picking up from Tory MPs yesterday was obviously at some point, you know, we're going to pull out of Kabul airport. These flights are going to stop. You know, the Americans are no longer going to have control of the air tower and we'll all be gone. And unfortunately, reality, as ministers admit, is some Afghan interpreters who work for the British troops are going to be left in Afghanistan. They aren't going to be able to get back in time. Mm. And I think the worry that some MPs were mentioning to me yesterday was if at that point you start getting the Taliban going around houses, searching out people who worked for the British army and beheading them in the street, I think then it's going to be quite difficult for Dominic Raab because the one thing he's not going to be able to say is that he pulled out all the stocks to try and get them home. Because just tell us about what you learned in the paper this morning about Dominic Raab's role in all of this. You were originally reporting that he delegated this call to the Afghan foreign minister to try and ease the process of of, of getting some of these Afghan interpreters out of the country. But today you learned that actually no one took that call. Yeah, so the clear advice from senior officials last Friday was that Dominic Raab should make this call to the Afghan foreign minister. What they were wanting was that the Afghan government would waive uh, requirements so that Afghans could leave the country without having visas and passports. So basically just making it much more easily easier for them to be able to flee in a rush. However, you know, Dominic Raab didn't make the phone call. He was on holiday in Crete. When we put that story to the government the other day, you know, they said he, the foreign sector was busy with other calls, but it was delegated to a minister. And as you say, overnight in today's paper, we report that actually no minister ever got round to making that call. And Melanie, in terms of the situation uh, and how this is playing out in the US, we, we keep hearing that, you know, American voters don't really care about this. All they want is sort of troops out of Afghanistan, no more um, uh, American armed forces dying there. But in terms of the UK, this issue of the Afghan interpreters left behind actually is really is really sort of seems like it's close to lots of people's hearts isn't it i i think i think there is there is a sort of basic a basic decency a, a basic feeling of compassion about them yes i think there's a recognition that uh, we owe them something um i think i think the british have always been rather good at that uh i think the americans will remake this very quickly into into some good movies, you know, they will they will spin it into sort of a Catherine Bigelow movies, and and they'll get Gerald Butler saving the day, and and Brad Pitt, and and all the rest of it, and we will have a new mythology about this, um, how you know the, the 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 special forces saved the day at Afghan, uh, the at the Kabul airport, but it's it is underneath it all the the 
the poor souls that do get left behind, and they will be. I, I think the British do care. Yeah, I do. And John, what of the Prime Minister's role in all of this? We keep hearing about Dominic Raab. Obviously, it's Ben Wallace who we've had on the airways numerous times. How do you think he will emerge from all of this? I think that a lot of MPs weren't particularly impressed by his performance on Wednesday when the Commons was recalled. And obviously, uh, over the last year or so, Boris Johnson has been doing PMQs in a very empty Commons chamber. And people said, oh, but if only there were loads of MPs there, you know, shouting, supporting him, that it would be so much better that kind of he needs that energy. And then you saw him in a packed chamber on Wednesday and it just didn't really work. He had a lot of opposition from his own MPs. You know, he didn't seem to be able to answer questions about his role and what he could have done differently. He didn't seem particularly fluent. He seemed quite uncomfortable sat there listening to some of his own backbenchers. I think a lot of them will be worried that maybe Boris Johnson isn't quite as good as we've built him up to be in our minds. Before we move on from this topic, um, we're asking people about the worst holidays they've ever had. Um, a different John, not Stevens, has uh, texted us to say, I was on holiday just starting a wine tour in France whilst working for a particular oil company over the 20th of April 2010 when a particular issue occurred in the Gulf of Mexico. I was called home, leaving the family behind and sent uh, to Houston, Texas for the next four months. Unforgettable. Um, either of you got a particularly sort of grim holiday story or holiday yeah. ruined yeah i've got a really awful holiday that I had to puerto rico when i actually thought that i was under some sort of curse on the under way a curse. There, oh, it was awful just wait for the list so on the way there someone else took my bag at the airport so took all my clothes then um we had scooters to go on this island near puerto rico and i fell off one of the scooters and i like, really badly cut myself then I, the next day, dislocated my shoulder. And then amongst all of this, I had really bad sunburn. And so basically, by the time I came back to the UK, I looked like I'd been in some sort of war zone. So that wasn't the best holiday I've ever been on. That does sound awful. Um, Melanie, what about you? Holiday plans ruined, holidays ruined? I remember as, as, uh, as a student arriving in, uh, at the Gardenor off the, off the boat train um, for a holiday in France. And uh, I was I was robbed by the pickpockets in the Garde du Nord who took everything out of my purse, all my money and everything, my, you know, everything. And my A-level French completely deserted me. And I, oh. I couldn't even sort of express to the police what happened to me. Oh. And that, was, that was grim. That was grim. I was on a uh, school trip uh, and we were meant to be going to Naples and the plane, because the pilot had a heart attack, was landed, did an emergency oh, no. landing in Milan Airport. And then they put us up in a hotel for a few hours and then got us into another place, sent us to Naples. In the midst of all of this, they lost my suitcase. One suitcase they lost and it was mine out of the whole flight. And I was there in Naples and I was about 17 and no one, none of my close friends would even lend me any clothes. So I had to go to like whatever the sort of uh, Neapolitan sort of uh, version of TK Maxx was, just desperately trying to think of what's the Italian for pants. I just need some new pants. Um, so, yeah, so I didn't enjoy, uh, I didn't enjoy all of that. Um, um, studio at times.radio if you've got uh, any good stories like that. Let's move on to different things. Uh, Melanie, uh, we've got the Paralympics uh, starting next Tuesday, I think it is. You wanted to uh, talk about that. But, of course, the situation in Japan with, with COVID, um, 
which we sort of slightly didn't hear much about or less about during the actual during the Olympic Games. But now things are, are in the midst of disaster, according to some reports ahead of the Paralympics. Well, I'm hoping that it's just um, you know the, the, the before there's always there's always negative stories before the actual event starts, aren't there? And and let's hope that um, let's hope that when they get going, everyone will be so taken and charmed by what's what's happening on the court or on the track that. Uh, I mean, I appreciate it's very the situation is bad and bad. It is bad, but if they can um, if they can keep the, the the village the athletes' village relatively under control, we will start to delight mm. in the the joy of seeing disabled people doing wonderful things. And um, it's not just the blue ribbon stuff. It's not just our our gold medal um, wheelchair sprinters, magnificent though they are. It's the stuff you don't see that doesn't really make telly. Which uh, 2012, I went, I covered them. Um, I was newly disabled, and I covered them. And you know the stuff that that made me sit and 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 sort of cry and tingle was stuff like the 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 seated volleyball, where mm. the you know where where people who can't walk are shuffling around the floor, putting the ball over a low net, and the Iranian team who all had polio. Um, they were polio victims because there's still a lot of polio in Iran and um, things like that, that that really blind. There's a sport called goalball, um, which is for blind people, whether it's like football, kind of where you throw yourself around the floor because the ball has a uh, has a bell in it. So you you uh, you know, you 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 kick and throw this ball and um uh, you, you you catch it because you hear the bell. Mm. Wonderful stuff. Amazing stuff. And and John, it seems like every every sort of Olympic cycle that the Paralympics gains more and more prominence. I mean, even in, in London twenty twelve, um, that there was just as many people, you know, whooping and cheering and, and weeping at the sight of what was happening over on Channel Four when the Paralympic Games was on, as was earlier in the Olympics. Yeah, and June twenty twelve, actually, I went to the Paralympics. One of the I'm going to forget the names of who the athletes was, but it was one of like the big, the equivalent of Super Saturday, but it wasn't because it was the Paralympics. It was like a Sunday night in the stadium and it was just absolutely incredible. It was so exciting. And I don't think anyone there would have said it was any less exciting than the Olympics. You know, it could have been even more exciting. But I think, you know, obviously with the Olympics on for several weeks, you get into it, you get into kind of the rhythm of it. And then it goes away for a couple of weeks and then you start to think oh you start to miss it and then suddenly the Paralympics pops up again and you're like oh we can go back to doing this again I can go back to watching sports I've never heard of and have no idea how they're played but get some enjoyment out of them. Just finally uh, I want to pick both of you uh, your brains on uh, a great story about um, some mini Angela Merkel toys there's an incense dispensing figurine of angela merkel with uh, it says her, her trademark diamond hand gesture you can picture it where your sort of hands are sort of facing downwards with sort of your thumbs meeting in the middle um, and it's sold out within days of launch uh, despite uh, criticism from people who aren't uh, the biggest fans of angela merkel i wonder either of you would, would either of you want that or is there any kind of politician figurine that you would actually be partial to john well, I think it does. The one things I'm, I don't think I necessarily want that in my house, 
But the one thing going for it is that it does actually look like Angela Merkel. You know, a lot of these <laughs> things look nothing like the person it's meant to be, but that is the one selling point that you can actually tell it's her. Are you not? Are you telling me there isn't a Dominic Rob Toby jug on her mantelpiece? <laughs> I've been smashed by now. If I did have one. <laughs> Melanie, what about you? Well, you can. Do you know you can actually get a Boris Johnson Sawyer wax candle prayer, a, a prayer candle. Really? Nineteen pounds. He has it's, it's his safer, you know, and it's it's wonderful because it, 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 the Brits the Brits see it as a parody, whereas I think the Germans take it all a bit more seriously. Gosh, Boris Johnson's cancel well, that, that the and there noise... is there is there is a there is a, in Scotland in in many homes in many uh, beloved of unionists with Labradors you will see a Nicola Sturgeon squeaky dog toy. <laughs> that is. That's borderline offensive. Um, Thank you both so much for for joining us uh, this morning. Melanie Mead and John Stevens are columnists. In a moment, we'll take you all the way back to 2001. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, our 2001 Afghan War Odyssey. This is the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. Continuing coverage of America Fights Back. From CBS News headquarters in New York, here is Dan Rather. Good evening. On the first night of Operation Enduring Freedom, here's the latest. The U.S. counterstrike against Osama bin Laden and the ruling Taliban is underway, led by cruise missiles and manned bombers. President Bush says the Taliban will, quote, pay a price for harboring the terrorists. The United States begins humanitarian aid flights to Afghan civilians. Top officials say the entire U.S. is now on high alert, and tonight's Emmy Awards have been canceled. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. An entire generation of young Americans 
has gained new understanding of the value of freedom and its cost in duty and in sacrifice. The battle is now joined on many fronts. We will not waver. We will not tire. We will not falter. And we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. Thank you. May God continue to bless America. And just to bring you up to date again, the American offensive against the Taliban regime in Afghanistan has begun. There are reports of planes and four, on a, four large explosions over the capital, followed by plumes of smoke. We're also having some... There are three port parts, all equally important to the operation in which we're engaged. Military, diplomatic and humanitarian. The military action we are taking will be targeted against places we know to be involved in the Al-Qaeda network of terror or against the military apparatus of the Taliban. This military plan has been put together, mindful of our determination to do all we humanly can to avoid civilian casualties. We have set the objectives to eradicate Osama bin Laden's network of terror and to take action against the Taliban regime that is sponsoring him. We will not let up or rest until our objectives are met in full. So that was what was on your airways on the 7th of October 2001. And um, with us this morning, uh, three people who were around at that time, we have an ambassador, a soldier and a journalist. And let's start off with Jason Burke, uh, author and foreign correspondent at The Guardian now, but he was in Afghanistan back in 1998 onwards. Uh, Jason, welcome. Hello. Thanks very much for, for making time for us. Uh, first of all, tell us a bit about um, the, the pre-war, pre-invasion Afghanistan, the reporting that you, you were doing at the time. What kind of thing were you seeing? It was an extraordinary time, actually. I mean, one of the very few reporters going into Afghanistan at the time. Um, it was very quiet. The, most of the fighting had finished by then. So the Taliban were in control of about nominal control of 70, 80 percent of the country less than they have at the moment, actually. And you can move relatively freely within Taliban-held areas. You can actually cross the front lines into the opposition-held areas if you were careful about it, and I did. Um, Kabul was poor, cold, scared. Nothing was happening. The Taliban ran the place badly, um, but imposed their own regime with some efficiency, I actually went twice to the football stadium where I witnessed a fairly close proximity executions and amputations, which was a pretty harrowing experience. Um, and I was able to move through Kandahar over to Herat and see basically a poor, abandoned country, abandoned by the West, abandoned by pretty much everybody which the Taliban were running at the time. And occasionally I would come across an Arab fighter, somebody from overseas, possibly someone connected with one of the various uh, global jihadi Islamic groups that were working and uh, based in the country at the time. Um, the other thing that I was doing was spending a lot of time in Pakistan, which is where I was based. And so I could see how those networks, the Taliban networks, were spreading both sides of the border, which was very important for understanding what was going on then and would be very important subsequently. 
And so then when the, the, the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon um, happened on 9-11, and, and then we had news of Operation Enduring Freedom, and, and we heard you know some clips there about what happened on the 7th of October when uh, armed forces actually moved in. What did you think of that at the time? Where were you? What were you doing? I was in Pakistan. Um, I was in Peshawar, which is a, is a city on the right up against the Afghan border, the Khyber Pass up in northwest Pakistan, uh, a city I knew really well, having been living in Pakistan for several years previously. Um, and there were two things that were going through my mind, or three actually. One was that this is never going to work if they think they can just uh, kind of bomb their way to success in Afghanistan. And I remember arguing that something a bit more subtle and a bit more based on manipulating the various tribal divisions would work better. Then I was just running around trying to cover the story. Um, obviously, massive interest and, and, and huge ignorance as, as well. I mean, not many people knew where these things were, where places were, who was whom and so forth. So trying to fill that in. But there was also just the a kind of underlying astonishment that this had happened and that this had um, projected as I said, a, a kind of very forgotten corner, remote, beautiful, but desperately um, a poor area of the world suddenly had become in a, a, the sort of strategic centre and at the focus of attention of not just every media organisation, but every policymaker, um, millions, billions of people mm. around the world. And that was really a strange thing to witness, how from being utterly abandoned, Afghanistan suddenly became the focus of this massive, expensive effort. And I can remember watching the Americans setting up in Bagram Airport in early 2002, bringing in vast amounts of equipment and even their own food from Ramstein, from Germany, from uh, from from the Asia-Pacific region, from um, aircraft carriers, or everything just kind of pouring in and this sort of city rising out of this disused airfield that I'd been on many times and thinking this is just, not just epoch-changing, it's just really astonishing to watch this historical moment and to see these people arriving with all this equipment and all this um, will uh, and all this power and all this money and then basically stop and say okay what do we do now mm. it was astonishing it was a really strange moment and also as you said a moment ago you were thinking this is never going to work um I wonder how that changed or, or didn't in your mind over those years as you saw the, the operation continue. I'd, I'd qualify it. I mean, I could see how militarily it was going to work. Hmm. Um, I, was, I was much more concerned about how politically it was going to work. And I, I then felt better about it, actually, as I was kind of in 2002, 2003, uh, before Iraq. Um, I thought, OK, hold on. There, there's so much goodwill around. This could actually work. Because the Afghans, on the whole, you can't generalise, obviously, and there are a lot of people who were very angry, uh, particularly those who'd been aligned with the Taliban, who had still had a, you know, a significant constituency within the country. It wasn't just a sort of regime that was just a few very bad people. Um, but the, um, the, uh, uh, the general sense among the population that I spoke to, I spoke to a lot of people travelled really widely in that period, was somebody has, you know, taken some notice of us finally it's taken this but now the international community the west 
the Americans are going to come in and help us and make us all, if not rich, and certainly stable, prosperous, mm. democratic even. By 2005 and six, when I was reporting from Afghanistan, that was changing really fast, if it hadn't you know, dramatically changed already. And then by 2010, it had gone. There were some who were still confident, who were still enjoying things that were going on. The, there was a lot of progress. Yeah. Kabul was amazingly transformed. But, you know, people were beginning to get worried and, and Jason, or just lose faith. And just briefly and finally, what do you think now then, having gone through all of that, what do you think looking on as the way in which this war has come to a close? I think it's a... I, I mean, it's a tragedy. The whole of Afghanistan's history over the last 50 years has been a tragedy. Um, I mean, it's, it's been astonishing looking at the, the pictures, looking at the light in Afghanistan, looking at the faces of the people, remembering what it was back, like back in 2001 and two, with that moment of hope and thinking, basically, they're back to square one. You know, a lot has changed. A lot has changed. A lot is better, but then quite a lot could get worse as well and i mean it is is authentically tragic jason good to talk to you thanks for making time for us today that's jason burke author and foreign correspondent at the guardian in a moment we will hear from uh, lieutenant colonel richard williams who was there on the military side of things and also uh, we'll hear from a uh, former uh, spokesperson for the afghan foreign ministry who's uh, formerly a, an ambassador to china and pakistan for afghanistan as well so we heard the view from a journalist who was reporting on all of this back in 2001. But what about somebody who was involved uh, with the with the British effort, uh, military effort, as the invasion got underway? Um, before we came on air a little bit earlier on, I spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Richard Williams. When 9-11 happened, I was serving with Special Forces as a squadron commander. And very quickly, uh, along with everybody else in defence, um, was um, put on notice to prepare for operations uh, in Afghanistan. So it was a very quick change, but the, the relevance of the change to me in terms of the, the dramatic differences from, from before was that one had been involved uh, for quite a period of time in the Balkans and working with uh, on a number of operations. Kosovo was the, the latter one that time as a chief of staff within a multinational brigade, um, very much aligned to um, the emerging European defence and security initiatives um, that were seeking to develop a long-term strategy for security and development in the Balkans. And I can remember prior to 9-11, our thinking was to invest in that axis for all the, um, all, all the obvious reasons. And then how at 9-11, really all of that was dropped to ensure that we could provide capability um, to support what was going to be an American-led um, operation into Afghanistan on what was um, a counter-terrorism um, mission, retribution mission, really, and, and one that was going to have to be executed pretty urgently. There was a big shift. There was a very, very big shift in focus from um, the type of interventions that you know Tony Blair had spoken about in Chicago in 1999 uh, and, and, and 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 later where we were seeking to you know deliver you know good to a counter terrorist mission where we were seeking to you know penalize those that were mm. had, had recently attacked us and it was a very big shift and practically for you 
what did that mean in Afghanistan? A, a counterterrorism mission. What does that, you know, for the for the completely uninitiated, what does that entail? Um, well, again, having to tread carefully around the confidentiality contract, and I apologise for that, but it's you know one has to respect this. Um, mm. it is that uh, essentially what it would mean would be Britain taking part in an American-led operation, decide designed to identify and neutralize the al-Qaeda elements that were sitting within um, Afghanistan. That was, that was the, uh, the requirement. And Britain obviously is able to provide a very small amount of capability relative uh, to the US. And our participation in that was going to be meaningful from a military perspective, dependent upon the quality of the targets, but much more importantly, was going to be meaningful on an alliance, strategic or, or political perspective. What were your impressions of Afghanistan when you first got there? Well, I mean, I start before I got there. Firstly, no one knew very much about it at all. I didn't get the impression that the UK had had maintained um, overwatch, if we call that, or or a great deal of of connectivity with Afghanistan after the Russians left. Um, I'm going to say that without being involved over that long period of time. But my last thing, my impression at that time was we didn't know very much at all. And we were going to have to follow the insight provided by um, whatever agencies we had, um, again, starved of resources over a period of time, not focused on Afghanistan. And much more importantly, what the um, U.S. uh, and others supporting the U.S. could provide them. So we didn't know very much at all. And so when one arrived there, and again, right out in the deserts and so on and so forth, um, you have a specific target to deal with. It's a military objective. But beyond that particular um, uh, specific, you, you were in you know, a, a really impoverished area where the majority of those that you were engaged with um, were involved in the illicit drug trade, um, the production of, of that which ultimately produces heroin. Uh, and so there was a very poor community um, who was living on primarily subsistence agriculture, but was able to generate income beyond that um, through participating in, in, the, in the narcotics trade. So it was pretty alien uh, to uh, that which you know one had experienced before. And while you were there, 2001 onwards and also i think you returned in in 2005 if i'm wrong did did the aims seem achievable in terms of what was expected of you counterterrorism as you were going about your business did you have a voice in your head saying you know this is working what we're doing is worthwhile 2001 stroke two one was there um then 2005 one was there both militarily um and then although I visited it a few times um, as a soldier since 2005, I left the army in 2008 and returned to Afghanistan in 2010, partnered with an Afghan businessman uh, to develop uh, a mining business and a mining services business. And I did that until 2014. Uh, significant at that time was I lived outside the wire. I didn't um, live anywhere near or, or within any military base. And at times I lived in a, in a village in northern Afghanistan for very extended periods of time. Um, and one really got to understand, as others that have experienced that type of living, 
Rory Stewart is a someone with much more um, experience than me in this regard, but I, I'd mirror what he says, reflect what he says. When you're living outside and, and amongst the Afghans and with absolutely no connection at all to the military mission and those that are informing the military mission, you gain a really sincere understanding of what um, the country is like and the people that you're dealing with are like. Um, but going through the stages, in, in 2001, the, the mission was quite clear, which was to sort of deal with al-Qaeda uh, as a threat to the UK, US and, and our interests abroad. And the Taliban were those that had been providing them space to operate. Um, the, the Taliban fell relatively quickly, um, uh, round about the same pace, actually, as, as the government forces have fallen to the Taliban recently here. Uh, and they did that because, um, and we were surprised by this, that, you know, people were prepared to change sides um, to align themselves with that which was most powerful as a pragmatic expedient. Rory Stewart speaks on this very well when he talks about Afghan being um, a, a country of 20,000 villages, where each village has to take a view on how to preserve its existence and its welfare uh, beyond that um, it, when it comes into contact with external forces. And the influence of central government over these villages is really small. So in 2001, much to everyone's surprise and ours, the, the, the country changed sides very quickly. There was Mullah Omar and others down in Kandahar took a little bit longer, but suddenly we ended up with a, a new government uh, through the lawyer Jirga uh, process that was established initially in Munich and, and, and with Ham uh, you know, uh, Karzai in charge. And, and by 2002, uh, you had a very dramatic change. Um, and uh, um, the, the, the questions were then asked about what do we do next? And it switched very much into a sort of low key mission designed to ensure national development, uh, development of institutions. I judged at the time to be uh, a relatively well structured in terms of timeline, and there was not too quick and not too hasty view on how we're going to transform uh, the Afghan economy from being one that is you know, dominated at that time by smuggling and, 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 and narcotics into something that was much more um, sustainable with respect to its relations uh, with the world. Um, and so it, it, I, I sort of, that first phase, we went from getting in and hurting someone and then by that process, uh, changed the government, changed the regime, and then slowly moved into a, a focus on, on long-term, slow, low-key uh, development. And, and that was the sort of first phase. The next time I got involved was 2005, when there was this real push to surge more military force in there. And that led to the British deployment in Helmand, the deployment of the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps and more. And there it was a much more muscular effort, where the military was very much in the lead, uh, designed to um, support new government being driven from Kabul, uh, changing provincial governors, and we were going to deliver uh, change uh, um, in, in, in a very energetic way, uh, which didn't work. And then my final phase, which is when, when I was there um, as a minor, and I left in, 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 as I said, 2014, and there was still fighting going on, I lived amongst the Afghans, had complete freedom of movement, had no security issues whatsoever. And the reason for that was one was delivering for the Afghans and the Afghan government. 
and, and, and all involved, uh, something that was really useful to them over the long term, uh, which was um, the potential of um, generating positive economic development through the exploitation of their minerals in ways that they owned the outcome. And I found that whoever I spoke to in Afghanistan, that was a welcome um, activity. So one didn't really have any security challenges. But your question was, do we think the aims were achievable? Go back to the first point. The first aim was to deny Afghanistan to Al-Qaeda. That was achievable over a period of time, as long as the Afghans continued to support us, which they appeared to be doing. The next mission, which was surge lots of military force in to deliver um, uh, central government's influence throughout the provinces and set the conditions uh, once any threat had been dealt with uh, for long-term economic development, that was unrealistic. Uh, and I think that's been proven. But the final phase, as I said, as a minor in the transition to a sort of lower key mission, which ended very recently, which was to essentially reduce the amount of Western involvement, allow the Afghans to take a lead, and then see if we can focus on longer, more strategic issues such as governance uh, and so on. And that, should it have been allowed to continue um, over a long period of time, was a far more realistic mission than the one in the middle. So we went from limited mission, more realistic, into one that was unrealistic, back to one that was realistic again. Uh, and, but unfortunately, it stopped, uh, as we know, in the last few weeks. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Williams taking us back to 2001 and onwards, um, bringing to a close our uh, look back to the very start of uh, the Afghan war. We were hoping to hear from uh, a former uh, diplomat uh, from Afghanistan, who, was, who, of course, was there at the time. But um, for the life of us, we can't get hold of him, not picking up the phone. So we'll have to leave it there. Now we're back in the present, back in 2021. Um, thank you very much for downloading and for listening. Matt Chorley will be back on Monday. I'm Luke Jones. I'm on the Twitter, at LukeJones03. If you want to hear all this live, by the way, and slightly longer, um, you can listen to Times Radio. You can get it on your DAB radio. You can shout it at your smart speaker. And also you can get it on the Times Radio app as well. Thanks for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.